Hi, folks. We're so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. Here's what one of you had to say. Love this. Smart and insightful. A good and fast listen. I'm always looking for ways to diversify the voices coming into my ears, and this show brings together a wide range of people and ideas. Def recommend. Thanks so much for the review. We're glad you enjoy the show. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and X at Our Body Politic, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the bio. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Sayu Bojwani, founder of Women's Democracy Lab, sitting in for Farai Chidea. With Election Day behind us, we're unpacking the highlights and what they might mean for the country. But first, we're digging into how we talk about politics and political figures. We start with a word you might be hearing a lot these days, polarization. But what does this buzzword mean exactly? And how much does it really apply to the current state of American politics? Here to tell us more is Adrian Lentz-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University. Welcome, Professor Lentz-Smith. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Let's start at the most basic level. How would you define polarization? Polarization, and I will say this, is one of these terms that drives me a little bit bananas. I would define it by saying that it is a word that describes circumstances in which people, communities, disagreeing bodies are on opposite sides of a disagreement or the spectrum with no common ground possible. I say that it drives me bananas because we hear it used all the time right now with no acknowledgement that there's already an argument built into the way that we're using it. We talk about the U.S. or sort of contemporary politics being incredibly polarized or populations being incredibly polarized as if every argument that people are disagreeing on have equal weight on either side of the argument and if the reasonable spot to occupy is somewhere at the center. And that's just not true for everything that we're talking about. So then what's the difference between polarization and division? Are they inherently the same and we're just talking semantics or are they different? I think that polarization presumes a dysfunction, right? That you can't do a lot in a terrain of polarized politics, right? This means that everything has been heightened, that you're at a point where people can't find anything to agree on and no one is capable of listening to each other. I think division has boundaries, certainly, or sort of distinctions between positions, but that they are more porous and work-withable, if that's a term that I can just make up right now. Yeah, let's make up the word, work-withable. They're more work-withable. <laughs> Many of the issues we're facing in our country are not technically two-sided, which complicates the term polarization. Can you talk more about that? Sure. 
many of the issues that we're talking about, the hot button issues around which we think about or talk about polarization are absolutely not two-sided. I started thinking about this and getting kind of worked up about it in the way that I saw people breaking down, analyzing, or discussing the Black Lives Matter movements and the sort of questions around police violence and all of the concomitant things, um, especially in 2020, but in the years before that as well, as if the idea that we shouldn't kill Black people willy-nilly and with large amounts of police impunity, and yes, we should, were two sides of a spectrum where we meet in the middle. What's the middle on that? Okay, we kill them sometimes with impunity and with small justification, but not very much, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Questions about people's humanity, questions about the functioning and daily work of American democracy actually don't have a sort of yes and no. They're not hardball with Chris Matthews, where one person can shout yes, the other person can shout no, and somewhere in between we say sometimes. Now, we might have disagreements on how democracy should function. How should it function? What are the mechanisms by which it do? Black humanity matters. How do we imbue that with heft and meaning in a way that encompasses as many people as possible and excludes as few people as possible, right? Those how questions are actually difficult, naughty, and there's room for all kinds of disagreement on them. But the space where the disagreement happens is not the space of should we let people live their life with the same rights and access to things that the folks and communities around them do? This might sound like the headline of a think piece, but is this the most divided our country has ever been? There's an easy answer to that question, which is no. But of course, your follow-up would be, let's think about some times when the country has been as divided, similarly divided, or more divided. I'm writing something right now that's actually about the mainstream origins of the far right and trying to remind readers that white supremacy was not just acceptable, it was the system of political economy that structured much of the United States up until the sort of civil rights revolutions of the 1960s. And I'm doing that in part by returning to the 1890s in my home state of North Carolina, where a fusion party that was interracial, not necessarily without tension, but sort of working together of populists and Black Republicans and other Republicans had sort of taken control of the state through democratic elections because people were worried about their livelihoods and their well-being. That fusion party was overthrown in the late 1890s through a campaign that structured itself around the language of white supremacy and argued to people that their responsibilities to their race as white men trumped any kind of concerns they had about their material well-being. Those campaigns were deadly. They involved paramilitary groups. They involved threatening people to keep them from going to the polls, threatening people who were at the polls, and telling folks who defied them, white and Black, that if they didn't vote correctly, they'd be run out of the state on a rail. 
that was, you know, in some ways an extreme example of political division and polarization, where there was a vision for how to restore peace and get people in line, but it was one that required the subordination of Black citizenship and many everyday white people working against their own interests. It's a hundred years plus now, but that hundred years doesn't feel as far when you start thinking about its residual effects. So when we talk about where we are as a country, you say that we're experiencing what historian Dan T. Carter referred to as the politics of rage. He centered that term in his book around George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. So when we say the politics of rage, what does that mean? The politics of of rage meaning the mobilizing and marshalling of white resentment and a sense of precarity where people are looking for easy places to place the source of their problems as opposed to being offered the tools to work through and work out where those problems actually lie. George Wallace is a really interesting person to think about. There's no doubt in my mind that George Wallace was a racist in the way that many people of his age and time were. But at the same time, Wallace was also a very savvy politician who understood how to work up a crowd in his support. And the politics of white supremacy, the politics of rage in the late 1960s, didn't just secure his position in Alabama, it made him a really viable presidential candidate in the 1968 election. It gave him a national platform. But when the civil rights legislation of the 1960s meant that there was a Black electorate in Alabama who mattered, Wallace's tone shifted. Maybe that was truly a come-to-Jesus moment and a change of heart, or maybe it was someone who understood that he had a different base and had to do different things in order to maintain his hold on politics, right? In that political moment, when the federal government was still in the business of kind of expanding access to the franchise, the politics of rage didn't play to a broad enough voting base to do work. Here we are in 2023. The Voting Rights Act has been disempowered. The racial gerrymandering has disfranchised any number of kind of Black communities. The Black voter base is contracting, whereas the racially resentful, the people who are freaked out about what the present means and holds, are exercised. And so the politics of rage pay great political dividends. And so if we are in a moment that we can talk about as division or polarization, we need to concede or understand that this moment is produced by sort of environmental factors and deliberate cynicism, because those politics of division allow folks to hang on to or expand their power. What has happened in history when this politics of rage 
or such a polarized, divisive state of being goes unchecked. Well, in the example of Wilmington or the election seasons that I mentioned a while back, like people die. It wasn't quite the politics of rage, but similar kind of deep and intense divisions that seemed insurmountable in the 1860s, you'd get the Civil War. And in the displacement and racial resentment that follows the Civil War when Confederates or former Confederates are upset about how emancipation has turned their world upside down, you get more vigilante action and terrorism, right? The politics of rage, of racial resentment, produce vigilante action and with it sometimes state violence that is ultimately at the end of the day anti-democratic violence. We are simultaneously reeling from the January 6th insurrection while watching it become normalized, at least in some people's narratives where they're deliberately misremembering that day and what it felt like. But January 6th in some ways is an awful but unsurprising outcome of the intense, racist, xenophobic, and we-must-win-at-all-cost rhetoric that led up to it. So, Professor, how do we put the brakes on what's happening today? What can we do to start lowering the temperature politically, socially, culturally, without compromising anyone's voice? There's ways to come at it directly, and I think there are ways to come at it from the side door. And I say the we, but this requires as many voices as possible to say as firmly and as repeatedly as possible, like, this is not acceptable. Part of it is finding a language of ethics and morality that is actually about valuing human life and being able to act on that as opposed to just talk about it. I think the way of coming to it through the side door is actually to think about those issues that people truly do care about that you can find some space for and to work around, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. So even as we have these kind of wild showdowns in Congress over budgets and what have you, you have everyday folks who during the pandemic emergency, we're really excited about child tax credits or the free school lunches. So if we can find a way to work on that on the local level and then build up and to take it out of the language of politics, but just into the language of meat and potatoes and what do you need, I think that's where we'll move the needle. I also, I am very much a 20th century person and I accept that about myself. I watch my students, the folks younger than I, tend to think that not being in person, but Zooming, hanging out through their DMs on Instagram, what have you, that that is a substitute for actually being with humans in what they call meat space. But actually, we need a kind of analog sociality. We need to spend time with one another. You need to actually have that neighbor or that uncle who says really wild things 
and you sit with it, and rather than immediately go off or clap back, actually just greet their messy selves with some amount of patience and compassion. And I know that sounds like a very simplistic answer, but I actually think that it matters. I worry that we have broken sociality, and I think the repair work has to happen in community where we can actually like be with one another. Well, given that, are you hopeful for the future? Do you think we can do this? Yes. That doesn't mean that I think it's going to be easy. I think that people like us have done harder things in the past to create not just community, but what civil rights activists would have called the beloved community. That work we know was always partial. We've lived with the reality that it can be rolled back faster and further than I think any of us might have guessed. But the example from those past folks is you try and you find and affirm your humanity in the attempt and you find and affirm other people's humanity in the attempt and in the faith that your work will produce something. Freedom's in the effort and you may or may not get there. You probably won't get there, but the best you can be is a person who attempts it and the most you can, the highest sort of regard that you can show for someone else is a trust and an assertion that they can attempt it too. That sounds very woo-woo while I'm listening to myself, but I don't know. The world needs a little more woo-woo. Thank you, Dr. Adrian Lent-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, for joining us today. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Next, we turn to another topic causing debate, the role of the vice president. Turning on broadcast news about Vice President Kamala Harris might sound a bit like this. Kamala Harris holds the record for the worst vice presidential rating in polling history. Kamala Harris gets to pretend to be president. Kamala has been hitting the interview circuit and it has been hitting her. That anybody is better than a president Kamala Harris. Vice I mean, President Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Vice President Harris, the first black and South Asian woman to hold the second highest ranking office in the United States, can't catch a break from media scrutiny. Everyone from GOP presidential candidates to NBC has questioned her ability to do the job of vice president. But what exactly is that job? And how do we distinguish criticism because of work performance from criticism based on race and gender? Is that even possible? To understand more, we speak with Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, Political Editor at The Grio, and a Moynihan Public Scholars Fellow at City College, New York. Professor Greer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Vice President Harris is a complicated figure. She doesn't fit neatly into a box, and that makes her an easy target for both the left and the right. Remind us of some of the criticisms she's received. Well, I think, you know, it's not surprising that she receives such criticism. We don't have a defined role for the vice presidency, and we never have. So when Kamala Harris came into the role, 
For some, it was, we never see her. We don't know what she's doing. For others, it's, we see her all the time. She thinks she's in charge. Then it was, she can't seem to solve the immigration crisis, something that no presidency has been able to figure out in the past however many decades we've been trying to figure it out. Then it was, she has no victories as vice president. Well, we don't really expect vice presidents to have victories because each vice president has carved out their own role at the pleasure of the president. Then it was, she's a prosecutor. She clearly doesn't know anything about Black Americans and doesn't support Black Americans But she was elected statewide as a senator from California. She has long since been, you know, yes, she got her start as a DA and also the attorney general of the state of California. But in those prosecutorial roles, she was doing the job that she was elected to do. So the criticism goes from the personal in the fact that they don't like her suits, they're too boxy, the interpersonal in the sense that she's known to be a terrible manager. And look at how all the people from her campaigns have all anonymously said that she's mean and she's bossy and she doesn't take criticism and she doesn't listen. So all these rumors about sort of female leadership, Black female leadership, women of color leadership, these are kind of retired tropes that we're accustomed to hearing when we think about women in positions of power. But we must remind ourselves we've never had a female of any race or ethnic background at this level of our government. And so this is something new to have a woman of color as the second most powerful person in the United States and ergo the nation. Early into her vice presidency, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times titled Dear Kamala Harris, It's a Trap. Talk to me about this political trap she found herself in. Well, I just thought because the role of the vice presidency hasn't been defined, and so we had someone like Mike Pence, he sort of tried to give Trump some sort of electoral credibility. We had Joe Biden under Barack Obama, who brought with him decades long of D.C. credibility. We had Dick Cheney, who was essentially running the show, right? We had Al Gore, who was a D.C. insider, second-generation senator. So when Bill Clinton came in from Arkansas, he could give him the lay of the land. So we've had different vice presidents. And her portfolio, for me, I thought was a trap, trying to figure out COVID and voting rights and immigration. I mean, this is the child of not one, but two immigrants going to the border and telling immigrants, don't come. And her father is still alive, by the way. You talked about role definition. So this big picture, who does define the role of the vice president? I think it's up to the president and the vice president. You play on their strengths. We have to remember Kamala Harris wasn't in Washington, D.C. for very long before she became the vice president. You know, she was elected in 2016. So it's not like she has a long base and foundation in D.C. politics. We are not also accustomed to electing Democrats west of the Rockies. Republicans have done so, but she's in many ways a political island. I mean, it's not like we have powerful Western Democrats besides Nancy Pelosi on the congressional level. But when we think about presidents and vice presidents, Republicans have had Californians. You know, they've had Nixon, they've had Reagan. We've never had anyone in in modern history that's from the West Coast. And I, I always joke, but I just think West Coast people are different. Yes, I'm a Northeasterner. And I don't believe that everything begins and ends in New York. But I do think that there are some fundamental differences in how we we view the country, I would think about race and ethnicity from a West Coast versus an East Coast perspective. And I do think that she brings a different perspective, which is is interesting, it's welcomed, it's new, it's different. But I think we have to recognize that D.C. is probably a much more foreign place to her as a Westerner than anything else. I'd love for you to say more about that. How has the vice president defined her role? I think that she's trying to do it on a micro level, 
right? You know, when you look at Kamala Harris with the big speeches, you know, let's say, rewind when she was running for the presidency, there wasn't a real connection that she was able to make with the voters. Hence, she dropped out relatively early. I mean, she dropped out well before Pete Buttigieg, who's, you know, the mayor of South Bend, who's our new transportation secretary. But I think when you look at Kamala Harris doing retail politics, she does much better. And I think this is why the administration is deploying her to college campuses, to places where she can have, dare I say, more intimate conversations about the large policies that she and Joe Biden are trying to push forward. So Joe Biden can give the big infrastructure speech and talk about the role of unions and uplifting the country in not just an economic space, but also literally getting us moving again uh, because of our crumbling infrastructure. But I think they've deployed Kamala Harris in different places to actually talk to people and answer questions and sell it in a smaller scale. I think that's probably her strong suit. In many ways, she reminds me of Hillary Clinton. The sort of big sweeping speeches aren't necessarily their strong suit. That doesn't mean that they're not good at politics and good at connecting with voters. It's just we have to figure out the best way for particular candidates to connect with voters. We know that Barack Obama can be in front of three million people and get the crowd moving. That's not for everyone. That's a Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Stacey Abrams type of personality style. For other people, it's a little smaller and more intimate. Last month, LaFonza Butler, the former president of Emily's List and once the VP's advisor, was sworn in by the vice president to the U.S. Senate after the death of California Senator Dianne Feinstein. Let's listen to a clip of that ceremony. Please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that you take the obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter. So help you God. I will. Congratulations, Thomas Senator. Congratulations. There we go. In an interview with the New York Times, Butler said that the naysayers in the Democratic Party need to, quote, cut the BS. It's disrespectful, and the thing that makes it more disrespectful is that we're talking about a historic VP. In relation to other vice presidents, how do you think she's done? We don't have a defined role of a vice president. So do we want her to be like Dick Cheney? No, because then they'd be clutching their pearls that this Black woman's in charge and Joe Biden's not being able to do what he was supposed to do. Do we expect her to be what Joe Biden was to Barack Obama? This is a man who's in... Washington, D.C., basically the entire lifespan of the president. So, no, she doesn't have that same level of electoral politics that Joe Biden brought to the vice presidency. So I think that we're comparing apples and steak half the time. You know, what did Mike Pence bring? He was about to be unemployed in Indiana, and he's the only sort of fool who would get on the the Trump train. Like, at the time, no respectable Republicans wanted to be his vice president. So... It's like, compared to what? And what exactly did you expect her to do in her capacity as the number two? Thank you. I'm so glad I asked that question. But, okay. What are some legitimate criticisms and missteps that the vice president has made? You referred to her visit to Guatemala and the backlash she received after telling Central Americans, do not come. Yeah, I mean, listen. We can't ignore the fact that there's going to be a certain segment of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, Black and non-Black, who cannot get over her tenure as attorney general. That is a prosecutorial position. 
even as district attorney, it's a prosecutorial position. They will fundamentally always see her as chief cop in the White House. But we are a bellicose nation. So the fact that we're like bloodthirsty and are in several wars simultaneously, I don't necessarily put that on Kamala Harris. We're hawks. Lots of people like to say that, you know, Democrats don't like war and Republicans do. Listen, America as a government doesn't mind a war. We've got a stomach for it. We've essentially been at war almost every year since our inception. So again, to put that on Kamala Harris, uh, I think is a bit unfair. Do I think that it is highly awkward and I'm not a child of immigrants, but I don't know what that thought process looks like to go to the border and tell immigrants not to come when your parents came precisely for all the reasons why immigrants come to America, for a better life, for for money, for safety, for their children. So I think some of the critiques I have are just kind of critiques of either the Democratic Party or the structure of American politics. I'm reticent to put it on one person, but I think that we don't talk enough about the intersection of race and gender when it comes to people in positions of power. We've never had a Black female governor in the history of this nation. We've had two, now with LaFonza, three, but only two elected Black female senators in the history of this nation, Kamala Harris being one of them. And I think that the packaging of Kamala Harris, sort of the rumors that we hear about her and her leadership style, I don't know if they're substantiated, but I am pretty sensitive to these anonymous calls of her being such a terrible interpersonal boss when I've heard that my entire career from other powerful women of color who essentially demand respect or demand results, all of a sudden we get think pieces about, you know, she's difficult to work with. 2024 is around the corner and Vice President Harris is running alongside President Biden. What do you think our listeners need to be looking out for in the coverage of this race? Well, I mean, Nikki Haley said the quiet part loud, which is, you know, the Republican strategy, which is, you know, you can't vote for Joe Biden because he's an octogenarian and a vote for Joe Biden is essentially a vote for Kamala Harris as president. I mean, Nikki Haley basically said, we can't have a woman of color as president. But that's essentially been the Republican boogeyman tactic. If you are even remotely thinking about voting for Joe Biden, you are essentially voting for a Black woman to be president because there's a whatever probability percentage that she might carry out his tenure for whatever reason. I think that we have to be honest about the fact that this country doesn't like people of color and they definitely don't like women. And we can pretty much (laughs) go through all the data as to how this country has not been very welcoming or kind to women of color. So that is a strategy that I think Republicans will employ and I think that it could be effective. I mentioned that in my piece in the New York Times. It's like, ask yourself why you can name every criticism and, you know, Achilles heel of Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren and every sort of powerful, Stacey Abrams, every powerful woman who's ever run for elected office. So I think that we need to be heightened in our understanding about race and gender and how they play out when speaking about this particular vice president. Dr. Christina Greer, political scientist at Fordham University, political editor at The Grio, and a Moynihan Public Scholars Fellow. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Sayu Bojwani, sitting in for Farai Chidea. We're back with another installment of our roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea. We sat down with our guests the day after Election Day to get their take on the results. Let's listen. I'm joined by Andrea Mercado, the executive director of the progressive advocacy organization, Florida Rising. It's good to be with you, Andrea. So nice to be here. And I'm also joined by pollster, political strategist and commentator, Fernand Amandi. Welcome, Fernand. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you all. Thank you. So we're coming off an eventful election. But before we dive into this week's developments, I want to discuss something else that's important for all elections, redistricting. Andrea, your organization, Florida Rising, is among a handful that have sued the state of Florida over proposed congressional maps going into the next election. Tell us more about this case and where it stands now. Yeah, so we are making our way through the court process. Um, Congressional District 5, which is historically a Black access seat, was redistricted, really uh, undermining Black access in that district. And we are one of the plaintiffs on this lawsuit. And we're we're hopeful that um, the old maps will stand and that Governor DeSantis's maps will not be the ones that are used for the 2024 election. But that remains to be seen. And Florida is only one of several states where these legal battles over maps have been playing out over the last few years, right? States like Alabama, Wisconsin, Texas, a long list. Yours is one of many groups taking state lawmakers to court. How do you see the strategy working out so far? I mean, you've given us some updates on where things are. Um, Are you optimistic about where it's going to go? We've seen some success, which given the composition of our Florida Supreme Court, we don't take any victory for granted. We know we have to celebrate every advance, but also it requires us to do some long-term planning. And so we have really been thinking about um, the next redistricting cycle and the work that we have to do between now and 2030 to be prepared for that and to make sure that anti-democratic forces are stopped and that we're reversing the, the tide. I think it's fair to say that Republicans in all these different states are counting on the conservative Supreme Court to weigh in, and they did just last month in Alabama. But the court actually sided against Alabama Republicans. Fernand, how do you think the mapmakers have been faring in these court battles? You know, Sai, one of the challenges that I feel we have now is that we unfortunately cannot rely on consistency from the ultimate court on these matters, when that is, of course, the Supreme Court. Andrea and folks like Florida, majority bring extraordinary work in places like Florida. But I have not really found a consistent line. In some cases, they will follow what the constitutional mandates are and should be for the redistricted process. But in other areas, we've not seen that consistent approach. So it really is kind of a hit or miss outcome that we sometimes have to plan for. And I, frankly, am concerned that there may be a, a more cynical element here where perhaps they'll approve one or two in some cases so that it bears the veneer of legitimacy. But yet in other cases on the big ones, uh, this increasingly partisan looking court that appears to take sides is not going to necessarily stand up for what the intent of the Voting Rights Acts are and, and, and other uh, mandates that we've seen by law. So I, I frankly am not sure and can't say with definitiveness if this is going to be something that plays out equally in all states. We've also seen in places like North Carolina uh, that's going through this very issue right now with a Democratic governor trying to push back 
on an extremely gerrymandered uh, redistricting approach to limit the state's uh, access seats for Democratic districts. So it's really a wait and see, and you got to take it on a one-on-one basis. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has been affecting elections since the summer of 2022. So let's start to unpack this week's results. Voters in Ohio overwhelmingly said yes to issue one. Can you tell us briefly what issue one is, Andrea, and why is it so important? Abortion was just legalized in Ohio, um, and this is a tremendous victory. Um, Everyone has seen how Ohio has trended um, more conservative in recent election cycles. And to see voters unite and stand against abortion bans is a really important victory that bodes well for the 2024 election where we anticipate that we're going to have abortion on the ballot in in several states. So um, part of the Ballot Initiative Executive Committee for Floridians Protecting Freedom, where we're collecting petitions to put abortion rights on the ballot here in Florida. Um, But we'll also um, see abortion on the ballot in Arizona, in Colorado, in um, Nevada and other states. And so I think that was a real welcome victory, um, not just for voters and people who live in Ohio, um, but really across the country where we're standing up for women's rights and um, abortion rights. Fernand, given the results in Ohio, what do Republicans need to be conscious of going forward? Well, I think they have a problem with the abortion issue. Clearly, they have not been able to crack that code, which they thought was going to be their one dominating issue. They've been working on overturning Roe v. Wade for 50 years. The dog finally caught the car, and now there's electoral apocalypse and electoral losses after losses in its wake. We saw the results in Ohio. So they clearly have a problem there, Sayu. The bigger problem is the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is an extremist on this subject. He wants a full-on national abortion ban. So a party that is now defined as extremist and out of touch, not just on this issue, but is also increasingly hostile to American democracy. We've had some Republicans come out and say, democracy is the problem here. Pure democracy, people like Rick Santorum, they've basically given the game away. I think it speaks to the electoral pickle and problem that they find themselves in And I don't think that there are any easy solutions because the American people are speaking here with a united voice that they do not want any infringements on any of their rights, especially the right to choose in this case. Right. And it's clear that the party is out of touch to some extent with its own voters. But Fernand, the margin was wide. So can you share about how voters of color figured into the campaign and the victory in Ohio? Well, I'm, I'm getting ready to go and dig into the details of, you know, the results and the exit polls. We're also going to do some some looks after the fact. But there is no question that in this state, Ohio, and in other states, what is driving that push to protect the rights of women are voters of color who are overwhelmingly, and I'm talking in the 70, 80 percentile range in a lot of different cases, voting to protect and bring back these rights that have been taken away. So if there is a baseline spinal column of support, it is voters of color in all of these states. And we see that in every one of these states, Ayub. And the reality is that Republicans in Ohio tried lots of different tactics to defeat issue one. They held a special election earlier this year for a different measure that would have made it harder to change the state's constitution. That measure was defeated. And then the Secretary of State, 
who opposes abortion, purged nearly 27,000 voters from the rolls. So these kinds of strategies, we assume, are are not going to be limited to Ohio. Can you talk about what you might be facing in Florida, Andrea? So the first hurdle that we must overcome is is actually getting this initiative on the ballot. And then, you know, the next one will be actually persuading people to vote for the initiative in the face of what we anticipate to be relentless disinformation. Um, We've seen that in Ohio. The disinformation machine in Florida never stops. Um, But I think what we have on our side, like when we think about a much more diverse electorate in Florida than in Ohio, um, we've seen women's rights and abortion um, winning in country after country in Latin America. You see the decriminalization of abortion, the legalization of abortion. And many people can't fathom that while Latin America is advancing on women's rights, that we're going backwards um, in this country. And so um, we are seeing a lot of resonance in the issue in the Latino community, um, a lot of specific work that is being done in um, diverse uh, Black communities. We have a large Black immigrant population. Um, so we can't take any votes for granted, but it is going to require an all-out effort uh, and getting our point of view and our message out to our communities and, and not letting, you know, the disinformation machine um, win. And, you know, in Florida, we have a really great track record of passing progressive ballot initiatives. We've won uh, the first $15 minimum wage in the South. Um, we want to Amendment 4 and returning citizens winning their right to vote. We have a a history of passing ballot initiatives. And so I think we're really confident that once we get it on the ballot, we'll be able to win this initiative. But it's going to require a tremendous amount of energy and focus. And another state where abortion was indirectly on the ballot was Virginia, where control of the state's General Assembly was on the line. Democrats ended up winning control of both houses, a setback, of course, for Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. Along with the abortion, LGBTQ plus rights were on the ballot, especially considering that Youngkin, like the Speaker of the House, is pretty anti-LGBTQ. And Fernand, Glenn Youngkin just lost control of the legislator. Do you see that as a similar kind of rebuke against these sorts of policies? I do. I mean, and he didn't only lose control of the legislature, he lost control of his uh, political ambitions for the future. Had he had a different outcome in Virginia... People would be talking about Youngkin potentially today as a last minute candidate for president against Donald Trump to save the Republican Party. Now that is in tatters along with control over the state. And again, I mean, I I am struck, Sayu, by looking at some of the exit poll results because this isn't just a short term problem for the Republican Party. 18 to 29 voters, 77 percent were in favor of enshrining and keeping abortion rights when asked those under the age of 40 up to 68. I mean, these are overwhelming figures. So it just speaks to the degree of the problem for the Republicans. And it's why I am not surprised. Again, I know this sounds perhaps a little bit alarmist, and I don't mean to be so, but I think it's a very dangerous moment because what the Republican Party is saying in reaction to these type of results is that we can no longer rely on democracy to push these issues through. The comment that I think bears repeating again, because it's it's so stark, uh, Rick Santorum, the former Republican senator from Pennsylvania, thank goodness that most states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because pure democracies are not the way to run a country. This is the reaction to what the will of the voters is by the Republican Party. If we don't change this, if we don't understand this, I think we're in a, we're in a world of concern. 
Right. So it's not an opportunity to say we're out of touch with the voters. It's an opportunity for them to say, let's roll back certain democratic measures. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that that's more and more, Sai, you what they're saying. If you if they, quote unquote, win an election in the future, it's with what they will perceive as the mandate to do whatever they need to do to remain in power, even if it means undermining democratic norms that we've been accustomed to for 246 years in this country. Kentucky voters chose to give Democratic Governor Andy Beshear a second term. He was up against Republican Dan Cameron, the state attorney general. This was yet another race where transgender rights and abortion rights, I see a pattern here, were sort of indirectly on the ballot. What was at stake in Kentucky? Fernand, can you share your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, as great as the results in Ohio were, if you're looking at this from the Democratic prism, also, of course, Virginia, to me, the most heartening result was the Kentucky race for the simple reason, Sayu, that Andy Bashar was probably one of the most, if not the most popular governor in the country, according to approval ratings. So the idea that he would have lost the race would have meant that partisanship and the waves of partisanship would have been the dominant uh, indicator there. Because Kentucky, as we know, is a is a solidly Republican state in performance historically and, and registration for that matter. So the fact that he was able to defy those partisan trends and still maintain and hold on to his seat for re-election, I don't think just bodes well for Democrats going into 2024. I think it does give hope that there's also a different way that Democrats can run and win in places like Kentucky that, you know, we haven't had much success in the past. And hopefully in Andreas in my state of Florida, where the Democrats haven't held too many statewide offices over the last 25 years. If I could also just add to that in Kentucky, um, the calls for racial justice and racial equity and the consistent attacks of the Republican Party on the black community is is something that can't be ignored. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the type of thing that we often forget that in every state in America, there are people of color who can be mobilized and are mobilized around issues of concern. So we've touched a bit on 2024 presidential politics. I want to return to Florida for a moment and talk about the elephant in the room, Governor Ron DeSantis, who seems like he's been having a rough time lately. A recent Iowa poll found him still lagging behind former President Trump by almost 30 points. And Florida Senator Rick Scott chose to endorse Trump over DeSantis. And then there's been this whole weird news cycle about whether or not he's wearing lifts in his boots. And Andrea, for better or worse, you have a front row seat to DeSantis. So let me ask you first, do you think the end is near for the DeSantis campaign? We love to see it um, every day where his incompetence, rabid ideology, anti-democratic actions are highlighted and ridiculed on a national stage um, is another day that his um, political power in the state diminishes. So we applaud the Ron DeSantis presidential campaign being a total and utter um, failure and um, look forward to seeing him out of office. You know, I'd say from where we sit, we're still really concerned about the actions that he is taking as governor. It'll be really interesting to see um, once his presidential campaign ends, whether he pivots away from such a hardline Trump-esque politic um, or whether he continues taking out elected officials from their posts and whether he continues attacking our right to protest and banning books and all the other actions that he's been taking that really are causing a lot of harm in the state of Florida. And what are your thoughts, Fernand? 
Well, I mean, I agree with what, most of what uh, Andrea said in terms of the damage and destruction he has wrought upon Florida. But, you know, unfortunately, the news is, is that while his presidential campaign has been a disaster, I don't see him leaving the contest anytime soon, certainly not before the initial contests in Iowa, uh, likely even New Hampshire and South Carolina. But having said that, there is no question that he has taken a political credibility hit with Republicans nationally as a result of this campaign. And even in Florida, what would look like almost authoritarian type total control over the Republican Party has now loosened up. And there is certainly no love lost between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and by proxy, the Donald Trump supporters and now the DeSantis supporters, which I think will create for a very interesting legislative session in 2024. Andrea Mercado, Executive Director of Florida Rising and Political Strategist Fernand Amandi. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter, where we share additional insights and resources for the OBP community. Check us out on Instagram at Our Body Politic and click the link in our bio. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Sayu Gojwani. Farai Chidea, Nina Spensley, and Shanta Covington are executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Andrea Aswahe, Anne-Marie Awad, Natina Bean, Morgan Givens, Emily Ho, and Monica Morales-Garcia are our producers. Amelia Shanbeck is our fact checker. Our associate producer is David Escobar. Our technical director is Mike Garth. This program is produced with support from the Sordna Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.